Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Uncensored CMO. Now, let me start off with a quote, which I'm fairly sure a lot of you will have heard before. It goes like this. Uber, the world's largest taxi company, owns no vehicles. Facebook, the world's most popular media owner, creates no content. Alibaba, the most valuable retailer, has no inventory. And Airbnb, the world's largest accommodation provider, owns no real estate. Something interesting is happening. That, of course, is a quote by none other than Tom Goodwin, who is my next guest on Uncensored CMO. Tom is most definitely one of my most favourite accounts to follow on LinkedIn. I love the way he thinks. I love his take on the world. And I really love how he brings behavioural science to technology and innovation. Uh, anyway, I catch up with Tom to find out what's new, um, see what's going on this year for him, and uh, his unique take on the world of technology and innovation and what we should all be looking at now. Uh, this is a fascinating ep episode. Tom is a wonderful guy with a unique perspective on the world, so I know you'll enjoy this. Here we go. So, ladies and gentlemen, a big warm welcome to Tom Goodwin. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. So listen, just uh, just if you could introduce yourself, maybe tell us how on earth you got into advertising in the first place. I'm not really sure. It, it is quite easy to be smug and to tell these stories backwards and make it all seem like this sort of genius plan. But it was just a sort of series of mistakes and serendipity. I studied architecture, which I loved. I never wanted to be an architect, oh, wow. but I thought it was interesting. Yeah. I love the sort of challenge of a sort of brief that you work to constraints, stimulus, provocation, and then that being turned into something, which was actually quite oddly used sort of similar in a way to advertising. Uh, I never knew what I wanted to do. I sort of did a summer job one year, uh, a little bit confused about what to do. And on my last day, the boss sort of brought me into his office and said, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm not sure. And he said, oh, I think you'd be good in advertising. So the next sort of few weeks, I applied to all these graduate uh, training schemes. I only ever got one interview. It's, it's a little bit more complicated, but that was the start of it. As you, you reminded me of my, uh, I, I originally did a finance degree and then decided I wanted to go into marketing. And in my final year, I suddenly went, now I love cars and I love advertising. I'm going to apply for all the kind of graduate schemes. And uh, Mercedes had an advert for, for the new E-Class back in, this is back in the late 90s. And um, I'm, I, I got the photocopier I, and I redesigned the advert talking about me, my features rather than the car's features. And I sent it in to them and I, I was so proud of myself. And I, I just got the default letter going, thank you very much. We put it on file <laughs> and then I never heard anything back. And then ironically, it just it's lovely how life works out. About 20 years later, I'm, I'm running a training module on this high kind of director's coaching program or whatever. And Daimler-Benz are on this course. And so I'm doing the introductions going, oh, who are you? Who are you? And then this guy says, yeah, I'm the HR director who ran the UK from the <laughs> mid-90s. <laughs> I don't think people have a full appreciation of, of how much rejection there was back then, actually. You know, like yeah. what people would go through. You know, like I remember one year I was a little bit down and my sister showed me a binder full of rejection letters. You know, because at the time you would, you would typically yeah. get a letter saying, you know... <laughs> No chance. And she had sort of three binders just full of rejection letter after rejection oh, wow. letter. 
And I think, yeah, these days sort of people kind of think things are very difficult and they think that, you know, no one replying to them is yeah. rude. Way it's harder to yeah. sort of gather all this evidence of people saying no. It's so true. One funny story actually from around that time is just before I decided I wanted to be in marketing, when I was still doing finance, we had to go and do a, a year out. So I decided to go and do a year out in, in merchant banking. But I, I did all the usual applications. And it, just like you say, I literally had all these rejections, didn't get anywhere. And it was getting to about two weeks before I was due to pack my bags and leave the halls residence and go and start work. And I hadn't got anywhere. And there's this advert in the in the common room. And it said, interview guinea pigs want it. And it was like 30 pounds per hour. I'm like, well, look, if I can't get a real job, I might as well go and pretend. So I went down. It was um, a big merchant bank called Climate Benson in the city. Very fancy building and mm. very posh. And anyway, I, I thought, look, it's only a guinea pig interview. I might as well just make up my experience. So I went in there and I've been running a company since the age of 13. I've got a hundred thousand pound a year turn. Yeah, I just sort of elaborated. I thought, well, I might as well give them a bit something to go on. And uh, they really enjoyed it. And they said, oh, would you be up for doing another one? I'm like, of course. Yeah, I'll come back next week. So I went back the week later, 30 pounds again, sat there. And the end of the end of the interview, the interviewer said to me, so are you going to accept the job? And I thought, oh, well, we're still role playing. I said, well, you can't afford me, obviously. <laughs> well, how much do you want? Now, this is back in 1983, right? I said £25,000, which was double the graduate rate at the yeah. time. So I just said, take a number, right? £25,000. And he said, OK, all right, I think we might be able to stretch that far. <laughs> when can you start? And I'm still going, this role play is getting a bit specific. Yeah. Now, isn't it? Anyway, well, then, good at the, the HR lady, I know the HR lady at the end said to me, so are you actually going to join then? And I'm like thinking I might have just got a job, but if I say, oh no, it's only a guinea pig interview. <laughs> anyway, I said yes and I started the next week. So I, I was the highest paid kind of graduate intern in, in I think, my university's history. And I just doubled what everyone else was on. I had no idea that was, story was going to end that way. I, I, so how did you get on? Were you a terrible employee? Well, the funny, I almost got found out. It was, it was a bit weird because I, I was, I was on trading support, right? So my job was basically to work out what the traders had sold the day before. I had to get mm. it at 7.30. By nine o'clock, I had to walk around all the posh, you know, you know, oak, oak lined, you know, deep pile carpet offices at the top floor and hand in the reports from the previous day. And then um, about a couple of months in, the HR director said, oh, John, can I have a quick word? Which university did you go to? And I said, well, I'm studying at Brunel. She goes, it's a bit odd. We don't hire from Brunel. We only hire from the four, I, I can't remember, the, the top four or something. I mean, there was like, you know, Oxford, Cambridge yeah. and Charles. How, how did you get this job? <laughs> and, I was, and I had to kind of come clean at that point. But no, I worked there for nine, well, for, for nine months in the end. I kind of decided at the end it wasn't for me. That weirdly, yeah. I thought marketing was much more exciting, a lot less well paid. But uh, I, I wanted to invent the future, not account for someone else's past. Yes. Was the sort of, you know, the the way I thought about it, but uh, here we are, you know. <laughs> so you, you obviously worked at, you worked in advertising, doing a lot of looking at the future and, and that kind of thing. And you, you've branched out obviously on your own and you doing your own thing in the last couple of years. How's that, how's that gone? It's gone well, it, it, it's exhausting. It's, uh, it's sort of somewhat terrifying every day, knowing that you have to keep revenue coming in at all times. Um, otherwise the sort of gravity pulls you down to earth very quickly. And obviously it's not been the, most easy time to sort of launch a company. You know, so much new business, I think, actually comes from face-to-face. -face. It comes from serendipity. It comes yeah. from random combinations of people. But I'm, I'm very lucky. You know, there's always a sort of steady stream of people that need me to do things. I'm always able to sort of pick and choose the stuff which seems most fascinating. 
And then you quite quickly end up in conversations about, you know, what does the future of this thing become? Do you try to sort of scale it to mm. be an agency or a consultancy? Do you keep it small but enjoy it? But yeah, it, it's good to be faced with these dilemmas about how to take this energy forward and how to grow it. I guess in my head, if I imagine, what does Tom Goodwin do every day? I've got this vision of you traveling the world, dropping in on kind of conferences and you know, checking out the latest startups and something. But is your is your life like that? or It's a very funny question. I don't want to kind of um, ruin the myth. I do a lot of observation. For me, a lot of people have gone wrong in their careers by thinking it's their job to sort of run the 100 meter sprint 10 times a day and they get paid to run the sprint. I mean, that's an exhausting way to live life. Mm. I feel like it's my job to be a sort of decathlete, to perform maybe once a month, but to spend, you know, 10 hours a day in the gym getting good enough to be able to do that. I've been very yeah. lucky, you know, because I sort of build a bit of a reputation, I'm able to say no to things, I'm able to monitor my own time. But almost all day, every day, I'm reading things, I'm talking to people, I'm going to terrible shopping malls in really depressed towns to sort of observe how people behave. You know, if I go to speak at a conference in Manila, I'll sort of arrive two days before and leave two days after and, and so I use that time oh, to, cool. you know, do anything from meet local entrepreneurs to just hang out in posh bars and hotels and see how people are behaving. So my job is to kind of, you know, be in the mental gym most of the time and just to sort of mm. ingest stuff and to try and take a sort of holistic view of the world, you know, to try and remove myself from the day to day and not in a pretentious way. I don't mean sort of rise above it, meaning, you know, be more smart. I mean, have enough elevation to be able to have a vantage point which spans different areas. You know, so to go to a conference about blockchain and try to understand it, but also to go to a car dealership and try and test drive a car and see what that feels like. Yeah, so every day is very different. And I'm quite lucky that most of my days I get to choose what I want to do when I want to do it as well. That's pretty cool, isn't it? I love the way you sort of look at the worlds and the way you connect dots between them. But what, what I noticed, one of, the, one of the, the, the biggest responses you got for any of your posts on LinkedIn was when you just talked about being a generalist versus being a specialist which i thought was quite interesting that that sort of caught light as it did really but it sounds like you're in a unique position to really see the world in a way that most of us who are focused on our job like you say that most of us are doing the 100 meter sprint aren't, aren't we and that ability to kind of look and see what's going on and connect dots is quite quite powerful really yeah and i think it's just a function of time to be honest i don't think i've been given any particular skills that most people in our industry don't have I just think I'm lucky to probably have a little bit more risk tolerance. So I'm quite happy to say no to people. You know, I, th mm. I think, I, I don't know where to take this conversation away, but I, I think our industry has got into trouble because we spend so much time performing and we spend so much time on the back foot and yeah. we end up never having the confidence to say no. I probably say no to three times more things than I say yes to. And it's only by saying no that you can free up the, tea, the, the time to do your job really yeah. well. And if you have the sort of confidence that by having this time, you know, you will get good enough to add value, you know, then you get the confidence to have faith in your opinion, have faith in the world. And then you get to do a smaller number of sort of higher value things. But I find the sort of state of the industry at the moment really worrying. You know, the number of people chasing new business that they probably don't even really want. The number of pitches yeah. where people are throwing everything at it and ignoring existing yeah. clients who are getting underserved and are then going to, you know, leave. I think we, we've somehow really lost our way, I think. 
Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense, actually. I mean, well, a little example, one of the, well, what was one of my favorite brands, anyway, a, a particular brand of iced coffee in the UK that I decided to subscribe to. Now, it's very unusual because I, I, I've worked in drinks for like forever. And we always said, yeah, direct-to-consumer is not going to work in drinks because the logistics don't make sense because it's, you know, it's low value, high weights and or whatever. Anyway, there's a particular brand of iced coffee, right? There's a particular flavor I quite like. And uh, so I decided to subscribe. Subscribing was so easy. And, and, and they sent me a, a lovely letter signed by the owner. I got some stickers, great for the kids, you know, all that kind of thing. Anyway, I, 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 I got my maths wrong because I was thinking I'll order enough for one can a day, right? Which is kind of fueling my habits, right? What, I, what I'd forgotten about is I don't drink iced coffee on the weekends because I'm doing other stuff, right? I'm, it's mostly fuel for work. And then I didn't take into account that sometimes I'm commuting to London and therefore I'm buying a coffee in somewhere else. And then I might be on holiday. Anyway, so what I realized is I had twice the stock. So I've literally got like, effectively, I could have, I could secondary wholesale this, this damn iced <laughs> coffee. Anyway, it was all fine until um, I decided, well, why don't I just change my subscription? So I went to log into the account and then the password didn't work. I'm like, oh no, how am I going to change? Anyway, so I sent an email to customer services, heard nothing. Four emails to customer services I got no reply. And meanwhile, my stock of iced coffee in my in my kind of garage was like going up and up and up. It should be as easy to leave as it is to join, really. I mean, I know you don't set out for that, but that philosophy of how do we make sure that people's experience after saying yes is as good as it was when they said yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm not too sure why this seems to be so difficult for companies. You know, I get slightly um, dismayed almost that companies are so... They're so busy being busy that I'm not entirely sure that they spend that much time being thoughtful and discerning mm. and, and focused, really. You know, you see with newsletters where you occasionally there's a brand that I love enough. Well, love is probably the wrong word. I, I admire enough that I think, oh, you know, actually, you know, you're asking me to yeah. sign up to the newsletter. Let's give it a try. And then three days later, they've emailed you five times. And yes. <laughs> it, it just seems ridiculous to me. But, but clearly people are not sort of measuring the cost of pissing people off. You know, people are busy figuring out if I do click on it mm. and I open it, that's great. But if I block them, you know, that's a really big missed opportunity. But yeah. I think people aren't really thinking that way. I think my personal email inbox is, is, is I've now, I'm now playing the unsubscribe game where I'm just right. like every morning, who can I unsubscribe? Because like you say, it's just thousands of, you know, wasted emails at no point at all. Can, can I go back and ask you about your, your, that quote, if I can call it that, <laughs> that's a quotes about, you know, Uber doesn't own any vehicles, Facebook doesn't own any, you know, doesn't own any content, et cetera. And you tell us the story of that quote and how it, how it kind of took off for you and got repeated many times. What's, what's quite odd is I've actually never used it in my own presentations other than Have you not? Oh. I'm the guy that wrote this. <laughs> and it always seems a bit, I don't really like this sort of world of thought leadery stuff. I don't really like people that sort of go around sort of feeling smug about what they've done. So I've never really wanted to use it because it just seems a bit embarrassing in a way to be like, oh, you know, look how good this is. But I did used to use it as just in case you don't know who I am, I'm the person that did this. But it came about in a quite strange way, actually. I think about a year before it went sort of viral, I did it as a tweet and it just sort of came to me. Like it was just one of these little hypotheses that I came up with mm. and I did a bit of research to make sure it was true. And I thought it was quite good. And then no one liked it and no one retweeted it. And I'm not that sort of precious about my social media, as you can see. I tend to sort of use it a bit like a sort of, um, sort of written diarrhea. But I thought, oh, no, this is quite good, actually. I think it's a shame it's not been retweeted. I think it's a shame it's not been liked. 
you know, maybe I'm posting at the wrong time or something. So let's sort of delete it. And, um, you know, at some point, maybe it's good enough to use in an article. So on my computer, I've got lots of different sort of folders and posted notes. And, you know, most of the time it's sort of full of either a sentence, a fact I think is interesting, a company I think is interesting. Uh, and then I sort of digest those into about any time I'm writing about 50 articles at the same time. And I remember I was sort of starting to think about the way that we were consuming sort of information in different ways and about the rise of marketplaces. And I was starting to write a piece. And I thought, oh, yeah, this will be quite, quite good if I put this at the start of this one. And then it got published and it did okay. And then I think sort of two or three people picked up on it, none of whom ever attributed it to me. So some guy oh, that's no. yeah, some guy that's a sort of thought leader for I think Salesforce or something. He sort of screenshotted it, didn't attribute it, and then sort of tweeted it, and then it went crazy. And then <laughs> and a very famous sort of big talking head in America, um, who used to do lots of videos, you know, his staff obviously saw the piece and sort of gave him that quote. And then he sort of made a video with that, which again, made it seem like his sort of IP. Oh, wow. So I think the, the sort of quote is extremely well known. And it's amazing mm. how many times I've seen it in people's presentations talking to me. But most people don't realize it's mine, which is fine. But, you know, that's life in the modern age. Do people ever present it back to you, not realizing they're presenting it to you? Well, not for a while. I mean, I, I don't sit in many meetings anymore. But, you know, at the time, I think I was working yeah. for last. And I'd sit in these pitches and it was quite embarrassing, actually. It got to the point where about twice a day there would be a meeting with someone presenting it. At no point ever did anyone say, oh, you know, I know you wrote this, Tom. And occasionally <laughs> I'd sort of challenge people on the quote and I'd be, you know, because people use it to make whatever point they want. So if you're if you're sort of big into Web3, you know, you'll use it to talk about the sort of power of democratization or something, even though that's not what it's about. You know, if you're a sort of vendor that's selling AI, you'll use it as an example of why really big sort of good mm. companies are using AI. So occasionally but I'd sort of challenge people on it and say, you know, that's not really what that quote's trying to say. And every single time people were very defensive. They were like, well, you know, uh, I think it is trying to say that. And I'm like, no, it's not. And they were like, well, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it is trying to make that point. And I'd be like, no, I wrote it. And every time no one ever believed it, actually. It was quite strange. Not being funny, but you're just in a lowly meeting in Havas. You know, you can't possibly be the person that wrote it. Oh, that is absolutely hilarious. <laughs> what I always thought was interesting about that quote is, is what would be the next sentence? What's the, what's the category that hasn't had that done to it? Because mm. that's the... That's a sort of slight provocation, isn't it? Something's really interesting going on. Well, do you have any, any thoughts on what industry could be transformed by? I think what we're reaching now is a point where we realise that these things are not as easy as it first seemed. You know, like the model of these companies where let's take an entire sort of supply chain or an entire market that people have to own and they have to stick to regulations and they have to sink massive amounts of capital into and they have to sort of maintain standards you know let's take a system like that and then just become a very thin sort of marketplace on top of that where we don't really have to think about it at all i mean facebook you know is a sort of clear example of that where they get to publish other people's stuff but they don't have to pay for it and they don't have to do fact checking and they don't have to sort of deal with the consequences there are obviously lots of models that people take this to so things like churo which is basically sort of airbnb for cars you know, you have sort of employment apps like Handy or Thumbtack where they become a sort of interface between you and plumbers. But what we're realizing and what someone who, you know, I, I dream of driving through, but I've never got the courage to do it, but one day I'm going to do it. I want to have a nice <laughs> enough car. But you realize that any business that is about humans to humans is actually a very difficult business to be in. And it's very hard to scale Uber 
beyond a certain point and maintain the quality and to not have to deal with the fact that mm. you know, if a car has a problem, it's your fault. Uh, it's very, very hard to scale Airbnb because past a certain number of point, you know, not everyone's designed to be a host on this planet. Not everybody wants to you know, yeah. clean properly. And I think, I think what we're seeing in a way is, is that sort of quote start to sort of haunt companies. And you start to realize, you know, in Miami, I, I rent out places occasionally on Airbnb to get a cleaner cost $300. I imagine the <laughs> average price that a hotel pays for a cleaner is probably about $15 uh, per room. Yeah. And you start to realize actually that hotels were quite a good idea. You know, you start to realize that taxis were quite a good idea. You start to realize that stores that, you know, had buyers and curation, you know, were quite a good idea. Yeah. So if anything, yeah. we're starting to see a sort of uh, a, a realization that these things were not the only way to survive. Talking about technology, I think I think my small kind of a brush with innovative technology came a few years ago, where back in 2013, I created the world's first augmented reality soft drink brand. I was, I was working with Blipper back in 2013, and I remember going to this will make you laugh. But I was at the European Packaging Conference. Oh, I don't yeah. know how every industry has has its own kind of oh, you know get together, doesn't it? Yeah, and awards as well. You know, like best best cardboard. Best cardboard display, best 3D, you know, amazing. Anyway, and I, I was I was up there presenting after a long line of, you know, people talking very technically about, you know, cardboard production and paper quality and all sorts of stuff like that. Anyway, so I, I announced that the QR code was officially dead because I'd, you know, I'd, I'd partnered with Blipper and that you could have an augmented reality experience. And then, of course, you know, the pandemic comes around and then suddenly QR codes, they're everywhere. You know, I guess, you know, supply and demand met somewhere in the pandemic. <laughs> pandemic didn't it but uh, what do you predict are going to be the technologies that we're seeing emerging today that could have a substantial impact on on how we live tomorrow i think i'm gonna cheat on this answer and sort of tell you what i want to say which is not necessarily the answer directly i think we're so in love with the next step that we've never really got to grips with what we've already got you know mm. some people right now are working on 6g and what does that mean you know, the reality is we now have 5G and it's made absolutely no difference whatsoever to any element of anyone's life, as far as I'm aware. At the same time, we've not really got to grips with what 3 or 4G mean. You know, we, we could have phones which have incredibly sort of rich premium advertising, which is video based, but not TV. We could be using the GPS chip within it with sort of local targeting data to be creating really amazing experiences where you walk into the airport and it sort of opens up your app and guides you through the airport. Like there's so much stuff that can be done on things that we invented in the 1970s and still haven't used, mm. you know, distributed databases that, that talk to each other in a secure manner were kind of invented about the sort of eighties and nineties. And yeah, everyone's obsessed with sort of blockchain even though we've never yeah. been that interested in uh, databases. So I know my, my kind of challenge at the moment really is less about thinking about the meaning of, of AI and less about thinking about 6G or blockchain or the metaverse. And it's much more sort of customer centric. It's thinking, you know, why is it that I have to tell my hotel all of my credit card details and my name and my phone number. And then when I check in, I then have to give them the information again. And then when I check out, I then have to give them the information <laughs> yeah. again. Yeah, it wouldn't be that hard to have some sort of profile that they access. So I'm much yeah. more interested in, in everyday stuff and using what we have. There are a couple of things which are quite boring, which I think are quite interesting. I think LEDs are actually very interesting. You know, what happens when lighting 
can be powered by very um, small amounts of energy. I'm really interested in what batteries mean. What does that mean for both power generation, but also sort of decentralized living? Fascinated by, I don't know, how this is changing our expectations of the world and what sort of new business models that. Yeah, you, you're absolutely right on the on the consumer application. I mean, something, something I, I, I think quite a lot is that making it easy has got to be one of the most big, biggest competitive mm. advantages. I, mean, I know in my, in my kind of system one role, one of the things I'm always trying to tell the team is, let's make what we do easy for everybody to use. Whereas we seem to be designing all our systems and customer relationship, whatever this, that, and the other, we seem to design it around what's convenient for us. You know, let's get the customers to do all these things so that it makes our life easy. And it's like, just turn it on its head. How do you make it easy to test an advert, you know? Or how do you make it easy to test a bit of innovation in, in the kind of little world we work in? But I, I think, so, you know, it's, it's like, I know you were saying the other day about, you know, you go onto a website and you have, you have bots, don't you? That might, might be a, a cheaper way of communicating with your customer online, but it's, it's sure as hell not a use, not an effective way if you've got a specific question that isn't just the most basic question that you might want to ask kind of thing. A lot of the problem is that marketers are starting to ignore people and they kind of, they feel like their customers are actually the C-suite. So I think mm. a lot of stuff that people is doing, it's, it's kind of based on the fact that they read Wired magazine and they've heard about Hashgraph uh, and they want to sort of show yeah. their boss that they're on top of things or, you know, that someone else went to a conference recently and they talked about an AR app. So they feel like they should do one. And that, like most, most sort of, most things in marketing should really be about simplicity and it should be about how can you make it easier to get money from people. It, it's mm. staggering to me the number of, of, of websites that don't accept Apple Pay or Google Pay. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm not a normal person, but you know, if, if I ever get to a checkout for a product that I don't care about that much and I can't just pay for it with one click, I'll just give mm. up get to Amazon and, and you know, see what happens there. Yeah. You know, no one yeah. can be bothered to get off the sofa to find their credit card details and type them in. And no. it, it's not like integrating that button, you know, costs anything materially. It's, it's not a sort of complicated political thing where you're losing data. It's just incredibly strange to me that companies are not thinking. Yeah. What, do you, what do you think about the metaverse? Is, is the metaverse something we're all going to be in in the future? Or is it one of those technologies that it will take us 20 years to figure out kind of its application? Um, I'm, I'm sort of trying to have an open mind. I think we're at this strange, almost liminal moment where... Since about 2005, we've let sort of screens come into our life and dominate. And we now are kind of, broadly speaking, addicted um, to screens. We're addicted to removing ourselves away from the here and now. And for most demographics in most countries that we think about, if you add up all of the time that people are awake for, more time is spent on a screen than not which kind of means wow. we're already in another world. Like we're already spending less time in reality than, you know, cyberspace or whatever you want to call it. It's, it's sort of easy to see how if the technology got really good and if we carry on sort of saying yes to technology without thinking about it, it's quite easy to see how there could be a whole movement towards people that are even more virtual. And, you know, sort of gaming in a way is the sort of uh, prelude mm. to that. I think probably what will happen is, one, the technology is really fucking hard. I don't think people are talking enough about how impossible most things in the metaverse are. <laughs> Two, I think there's probably going to be quite a big societal reaction to it. I think it, these conversations made sense if you lived in a lockdown place 
during the pandemic. But if you lived in Miami, these conversations were absurd because you could quite quickly see that mm. people were rejecting the internet. They weren't watching Netflix. They were going out having more fun than ever before. You know, I don't think many people that saw their kids um, learning remotely sort of saw the return to school yeah. as inefficient. They saw that as life. So I think probably mm. what we'll have is a, a bit of a reaction against all these screens and we'll probably end up for most people in most demographics, in most sort of normal life situations, you know, we'll realize that the metaverse was kind of ridiculous. I mean, the perfect thing mm -hmm. is it doesn't really exist. It's not really defined. It seems to be a sort of vessel that people put their, their commercial hopes into. So for some people, it's about Web3. For some people, it's about blockchain. For some people, it's about AR. For some people, it's about decentralization. For other people, it's about a lack of censorship. It's, it's kind of this amorphous bucket of, you know, useful content for people to sell their startup on. But largely speaking, it's all nonsense. Yeah, yeah, and, and and really, what we want to be doing is working out how do we use technology to make the real life, make our real life better. Yeah, you know, which I, yes. I think is a far more interesting question, isn't it? To, I think um, to try and get ahead. For me, the right metaphor for or, or framework to think of technology is a way for us to be more human, which often means spending more time without devices. Online dating yeah. is a great way. You know, online dating is a way to yeah. meet someone in the, you know, virtual world and then meet up with them in reality and, you know, hopefully spend a lot of time with them. Google Maps is a great way to use a screen to find things around you that are good. And I think the more that this becomes a sort of augmentation to our life rather than a replacement, mm. the more positive I feel about the future. Yeah, that's a great definition, isn't it? it makes a lot of sense. Um, something I thought was interesting as well that you pointed out um, in a post the other day was how, how many apps we now use were invented more than eight years ago, which I thought was quite fascinating, you know, looking at the top 10 social apps. And we, we have this idea that everything was invented yesterday. But I think I think in your list, only two, I think it was Snapchat and TikTok, wasn't it, have been less than eight years old. That's astonishing, yeah. isn't it, given how new, relatively, things are. Well, I don't sort of come into the world wanting to be provocative or contrarian. And lots of people always sort of introduce me in that way. And it's not, it's just that I try to sort of question things. So mm. when you go to conferences and you see people saying, you know, the world is changing faster than ever. You know, we live in a time which is more uncertain and yeah. volatile and rapid and chaotic. I know, I kind of tend to take a step back and think, you know, are we? I mean, is, is it a really big surprise that we buy things from the internet now? Is it really surprising that we do banking online? You know, are we really, you know, the pandemic is obviously a sort of anomaly, but if we remove mm. many elements of that, or even if we think about that, you know, what we kind of saw was a blip and what we kind of see now is, is a sort of retreat back to a life that we could have predicted. Yeah. And as part of that, what you realize is in history, we've gone through periods of very rapid change. You know, like if you look at New York in the 1920s, you, know, you see skyscrapers built, you see subway systems built. You know, you look at things like the advent of container ships and how that changed global trade. Actually, what we had is that we invented 3G, we invented the smartphone, loads of really exciting companies launched, which had a profound impact on how we behave and business models. And then in the last eight years, nothing has happened at all. Mm. You know, I mean, you could say that mm. TikTok is new, but it's kind of based on the same thinking that happened with Vine yeah. or, you know, with Instagram Reels or something. And I think what's kind of happened is... I don't know, we, we, we haven't really sort of figured out how to make sense of this stuff. We haven't figured out what new behaviours to, to satiate. And I think that makes it very exciting. Like people often think I'm quite miserable when I say things like that. But what I'm really <laughs> saying is actually now is not a panicky time to do our job. It's quite a stable time where we live in quite a stable economy.
now is not a time to run around panicky because, you know, strange things are happening faster than ever before. No, we live in this lull of innovation, which is ripe for people to introduce sensible businesses into. And that's the nowism as well you talk about, isn't it, in your book about you know, using what is current and, and rather than what might be in the future, which is a seems like a much more robust way to build a business. Yeah, it's a much harder way to make money because everyone yeah. wants the experts and the new stuff. I get yeah, true. so many requests like, oh, this client wants a presentation all about the metaverse and how exciting it is for them. Yeah, yeah. Talk about blockchain yeah. more than it's for a credit card. And obviously what I should be doing is changing my LinkedIn profile to sort of Web3 expert and then I can make money really yeah. easily. But I can't in good faith. <laughs> so true. I can't in good faith, you know, talk to an airline <laughs> doing their best with staff shortages, you know, who has a computer system which doesn't allow people to change their flights, that has a call center that's been sort of swamped by people for years, that now has sort of stories in the press about how they're falling to bits. I can't in good faith take senior executives' time and money and tell them about the metaverse in that context. Like, I, I kind of refuse to which is uh, not good for my brain balance, but it's good for my sense of, I don't know, authenticity, I guess. Well, well linking on that, what is, obviously you do a lot within, you know, talking to companies about being innovative and in, innovating. What are the biggest barriers to, to innovation in companies when you're talking to, the to People them? don't really want to change, and that's not criticism. You know, the reality is that, especially for large companies, large companies have been very, very good at doing what they've done for a long time. If you're a car company, you've got very good at making cars. You've got very good at mm. making combustion engines, you've got very good at dealing with clutches, you've got very good at suspension. You know, along comes Tesla and all of a sudden the questions that you have to answer are things like, you know, how do we manage the range? How do we charge these cars quickly? How do we supply these things when we don't have a dealership infrastructure? How do we do leasing on something that we don't know what the resale value is going to be? And they face very different questions. And if you tried to go to an old company that's got very good answering the old questions and get them to answer new questions, it's almost impossible to get people to change how they think. This is a sort of realization I've only really made in the last sort of three or four years, you know, because for years you sort of presume you can go to a car company and be like, oh, look how exciting software is. You yeah. know, and we have yeah. been ordering washers, you know, suddenly get excited about the idea of ordering sort of tech vendors. And you, but you kind of realize that, you know, past a certain point, people are not really that malleable. And it's much more about how you can sort of create new businesses and create new behaviors and create new cultures than it is about changing mm. what you have in a way. It reminds me of quite an old book now, but the Clayton Christensen book, Innovator's Dilemma as well, right. where, he, yeah. where he talks about, you know, companies of a certain size that are locked into a technology. The, new, the emerging technology is always too small for them to really divert resources to in the short term. So what happens is other, other competitors come in and do that. And then by the time they spot it or it's worth it, it's too late. And yeah. Yeah. And I, I've certainly seen that in many of the companies I've worked for is that they, I mean, uh, classically in soft drinks, which is my background, I remember uh, uh, a Britvic, we, we used to say, well, an innovation's not worth doing unless it's 10 million quid in the first year. <laughs> and I actually, I actually went and looked up, like, how many innovations actually got to 10 million in the first year? And the answer was none. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there yeah. are some line extensions like, you know, Coke do a zero that overnight. That's a success. But actually, it took five to seven years for most of the really new ideas to kind of embed and, and catch on. But that, you know, that meant that Britvic were, were missing out on all those innovations because they didn't have the patience to sit it out for the first year when you do half a million, the second year where it's only up to two, you know. It's it's very hard. And I think kind of like one has to be um, respectful to the fact that, you know, the, these companies are built to be as they are. 
you know, you, you can't sort of build a massive mm. oil tanker um, that carries vast amounts of oil around the world and then go, oh, it's a bit shit. You know, it doesn't look very good, does it? <laughs> yeah. It wasn't designed to do that. You know, you can't complain yeah, when it true. doesn't stop quickly. And yeah. therefore, one one has to sort of realise there's a there's a there's a world in which oil tankers need to exist, and there's a world where oil tankers companies can also buy speedboats as well. There's a there's a world where mm. they decide not to, and that's okay. You know, I think as long as people know what they're about, I think I think that's the sort of problem at the moment is that the companies yeah. that operate oil tankers are trying to pretend they're green energy companies. The companies yeah. that operate oil tankers are trying to do a photo shoot of how beautiful their boats look. And the reality is they're not like that, and that's okay. But don't try to pretend. Or yeah. if you are going to try and be a very different company, then really do it properly. And appreciate it's going to take a long time, appreciate it's going to involve a lot of risk, appreciate it involves a lot of capital investment, and then commit to that. But don't don't sort of pretend. You know? So of, of all the things you've seen and in innovation you've looked at and, and, and workshops and so on, is there an idea that's in your head that you think, ah, if, if someone should go and do that now? I think... Almost every industry has enormous potential to be dominated by a company that approaches it in a different way. There's this hmm. very weird sentiment around the world almost now where it's like, you know, uh, somehow people feel like we've had technology long enough and we've got to grips with it. You know, we, we really haven't. You know, if you ever try and buy a car, you know, buying a car is a horrendous experience apart from with Tesla. If you try to fly with an airline in certain ways, it, it's pretty terrible. So I think most, you know, the car rental industry for me is a, a complete um, clusterfuck, if you don't mind me saying. Yeah. I think there are opportunities within education as well. You know, how can someone figure out what university education is really about and sort of emulate mm. that in a way which is more accessible to other people? I think the whole job application process and recruitment is completely ripe for innovation. Yeah, it's it's almost hard to not see opportunity everywhere when you realise quite how magical things can be. And yeah. also you start to realise, this sounds a little bit rude, but I mean, a, a lot of the companies that we celebrate today are, are not very sensible companies. I mean, they're operating in fairly shitty areas. Every, every time I see a sort of direct-to-consumer company, I'm thinking, you know, this is never really going to make profit the same way that older companies mm. have. So, yeah, there's enormous opportunities for people to unleash what technology we have now in sort of more imaginative and ambitious and sort of customer-centric ways. I always think with D2C, it's like, do I really want my toothbrush coming on subscription, my deodorant, my T-shirts, my underwear, my, you know, yes. my iced coffee, which is the only thing I do subscribe to? <laughs> Eventually, someone's going to go, I've thought of a solution to your multiple subscriptions. There's a thing called a shop that delivers yes. all of it in one go. You know, yes. it's, yeah. it, you know these, these things can go full circle, can't they? For sure, for sure. Oh, Tom, this is brilliant. Um, I think I was just going to end on very quickly is uh, I really love the the post you did the other day of the in the office auto reply, which I thought was very sweet. <laughs> well done, that person that put their in the office reply on, which I thought was brilliant. And it's so true, isn't it? Because... Um, you know, we've got used to working from home and being available. And then the joy of going back to the office and being with people, actually being in person means you're a lot less uh, accessible to phone and email and Zoom calls, of course, which I just thought what a clever inversion of reality to put on a in the office, out of office. <laughs> Sadly, it was not me that wrote it, as you said, um, but no, I thought it was genius. Yeah. It's a, it's a rare sort of understanding of, of this moment and the sort of chaos that's around. It is, yeah. And, and sort of clarity yeah. on actually what these things are really about. 
And maybe just finally to ask you, you've got a new book coming out, haven't you? Is it next year? I think it's in the UK. You can actually buy it now. It's sort of marketed as being a second version of my first book. But in yeah. reality, it's actually a completely brand new book. Because I kind of... I kind of messed it up, really. Like, they asked me to write a new book, and I said no. And then they asked me to tweak my old book. And then I sort of sat down on page one and then just rewrote the whole thing from scratch. So it's it's a completely new book that doesn't look like it. Brilliant. And for everyone listening, it's called? Um, I can't remember exactly. I saw Digital Darwinism 2 or something like that. Yeah. It's got a yellow cover. Yellow cover. Digital Darwinism 2 or something approximating that. Yes. Tom Goodwin. I'll, 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 leave some, I'll leave some connections in the show notes as well for everyone to check out. Tom, it's been a real blast. Thank you so much. Fascinating as always talking to you and thanks for taking the time out. It's been great. Thanks very much, John. So, ladies and gentlemen, that was the one and only Tom Goodwin. A fascinating conversation. And to be quite honest, I could have talked to him for a lot longer. Uh, It felt like we only just got started, but I'm sure that gives me an excuse to get him back on the show in the future. If you like that conversation and want to find out more about the Uncensored CMO, please do follow me and subscribe. You can do that on Apple Podcasts. You can also do it on Spotify and now as well on Amazon Music too. So uh, three sources of Uncensored CMO. Please do also leave me a review. I would love to hear from you. And uh, also, if you've got any uh, ideas for future guests, then you can contact me on Twitter at CMO or via LinkedIn, where I'm found as my normal name, John Evans. That's John without an H. Lastly, just to say, Tom's book is out now in the UK and is coming out very shortly in the US, Digital Darwinism 2. Uh, go check it out, and uh, I'm sure you will enjoy that. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.